Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Hello, world. Welcome to The Charlie Shrev Show, your deep dive into the fascinating intersection of finance and technology, Bitcoin, crypto, Web3, AI, everything. We tell stories, we talk about how these things started, the people behind them, and the real, real juice. I am your host, Charlie Shrem. And today we're hitting the bullseye of a super hot issue everyone's talking about, the intensifying regulatory environment for crypto companies. And with the end of the current Biden administration, their moves have been crazy. There's an increasing belief that we're witnessing Operation Choke Point 2.0 in action. We've got Coinbase and other significant players contemplating their exit from the U.S. And the cry for regulatory clarity from the crypto community is growing louder than ever. Today, I'm excited to bring you a conversation with three incredible guests, each making waves in the banking and financial services sector of crypto. We'll hear about how their shifting regulatory landscape is influencing their operations, the stories of how they started, and we'll tap into their insights on what's next for the financial side of crypto. Our first guest, Joseph Jay, is the leading voice in peer-to-peer lending and the co-founder and CEO of Pawn. From Switzerland, Joseph is pioneering the use of digital assets to secure loans and help transform all of our illiquid assets into productive ones. Super cool. Next, we have Joshua Garcia, a seasoned advocate in the fintech space who works closely with top organizations in the field to help manage regulatory risk. With nearly a decade of experience, Joshua's research on open standards to measure blockchain network centralization offers us a very unique perspective. We need to know how to measure decentralization and centralization. We're always talking about this like path and road to decentralization. How do we measure that? And last but not least, we're speaking with Seamus Rocca, CEO of Zappo Bank. You guys know Zappo. They're one of the oldest companies in the space, OG company, one of the leading Bitcoin custodians and now a fully licensed private bank. With over 23 years of experience in the financial services sector, Seamus brings a wealth of knowledge on navigating the choppy regulatory waters in the crypto banking space. So buckle up, folks. It's going to be a fascinating journey. We're going to have some fun. Enjoy as we delve into the complex world of crypto and Bitcoin. I'm really excited to to bring on the guest today, Joseph J. Joseph, thank you so much from Pawn. And you can check out the website at pawnpwn.xyz. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Amazing, Charlie. Thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, couldn't wait. You have one of these companies that I'm very jealous about because, you know, and like you sometimes brainstorm with your friends about a really cool idea and you say, someone should invent this. And then like months later, you found out or years later, someone did. You are that, you are that business. And I remember going back and it's very important and I'm going to use that as an introduction because it's very important what you do for creating not just liquidity for assets, but also for price discovery, because that leads to stability and that leads to building the economy of things on top of, of all these blockchains. You're the co-founder and CEO of PWN or Pawn, a permissionless peer-to-peer lending platform, helping people turn illiquid digital assets into productive ones. Essentially, what you do is you allow anyone to take out loans backed by other digital assets. So you can use NFTs like CryptoPunks, Board 8 Yacht Clubs, and coins like, you know, DAI and, and Ape as collateral, and then be able to borrow against that. But also at the same time, you're allowing other people to be the liquidity providers to create the rates and be the actual lenders, you know, and lendees at the same time. And you guys are just like a protocol in between. It's so cool because I just remember when this didn't exist, probably two years ago, I was sitting in a meeting with with one of these top exchanges and I was saying like, you guys have an NFT wallet. You have one of the largest platforms. People are maintaining, you know, you already have your financial licenses at everything you need. Why don't you offer like lending against this? And they're like, well, it's just too complicated for doing both sides. How did you figure it out? Well, that was a, that was a great summary, first of all. Uh, I also like to say, because there is a lot of like lending and borrowing protocols in DeFi, uh, and there is a whole variety of like products that the people or crypto natives can use today. I like to call on the mortgage protocol because that's, that's kind of our, our specialty. So we basically just created this permissionless protocol, as you mentioned, where you can use any standard token on EVM chains currently. But the plan is definitely to go uh, like even deeper into the stack and, and you know, going forward to deploy this to, to all of the chains that allow um, the smart contract functionality. 
And then um, also, as you mentioned, like we, we just like literally build a protocol so we don't act as, a, as an intermediary. And we are currently, I mean, we are just getting out of beta. So, so we just launched this, uh, launched this uh, almost a year ago in June uh, during EPRA last year. And we're still in this process of discovery of like, how will people actually use this and interact with this? And like, what are the types of assets people will use this for? And while building it, we kind of want to keep this, you know, open, open mindset of like saying, hey, we shouldn't really, we shouldn't really like enforce, enforce something as like a central party here, but rather build a marketplace, if you will, or just like a platform where people can uh, mix and match and, and basically like stay on this like peer to peer value set in, in crypto. And uh, so we, we created this like generalized protocol where people can use like whatever they want, whatever is like compliant with the token standards. And as long as there are counterparties, as long as there are borrowers that are looking for uh, liquidity on their assets or lenders who would be willing to accept something as collateral, then, you know, there's no reason why these interactions like shouldn't, shouldn't occur. So one option would be to just like build custom contracts for all of that. Or then just like use a use a generalized protocol. I mean, why do you call yourself a mortgage protocol then? Because our the, the loans on the, the loans on pawn are a bit different than, than what you can find like traditionally in DeFi. So so first of all, like the motivation for building pawn is is like pretty similar to the idea of like, hey, somebody should should build this. Because when we started with the project, the, the first trigger was essentially like me being rejected at a bank wanting to get a regular mortgage because I was considering myself crypto native. I was paid in ETH and like all of my transactions or like the majority, including my salary, were happening on chain. And then I wouldn't be even like considered for like getting a credit score or something like this. I wouldn't, you know, I, I would be completely excluded from, from the real estate market just by the virtue of like being in a different asset class. And it triggered us into, uh, you know, thinking, well, there isn't real difference. Like it's it's just like real estate or like stocks, you know, bonds and like these kinds of portfolios. It's just a different asset class. And like you can get mortgage type of loans, meaning like loans that basically vanish or disappear upon either repayment or yeah. or default if you like this installment. And there is no reason why this shouldn't exist in this like new paradigm, right? Like the DeFi paradigm where you can even like cut parties in between the parties doing the appraisals, the, the parties like doing the custody and escrows of these assets. And you don't even have to, you know, have any like jurisdiction in between because you can basically just implement it, let it sit in the contract and you can automate the entire flow. So, th and that's, that's what Pawn is in its core. It's not like, you know, like an automated pool where you basically just uh, try to take, uh, take like a fee on people getting into positions where in like high liquidity, high liquidity seasons, they can get like easily liquidated. But it's it's more similar to how regular mortgages work. I mean, like they don't they don't really take into account like some some sort of like volatility of those assets during the term. So there's definitely like a bit more exposure for the lender to make wrong bets, which currently in DeFi you don't have. Like in, in DeFi, you're like fully covered if you don't consider the systemic risk. You're fully covered because like your positions will be secured by the liquidation mechanism, which just makes you basically degen into whatever protocol there is and yeah. just like for, for your money to and then as borrower if there is like one day dip you're screwed you just like lost your life savings and this this kind of still put the entire defined crypto into into you know the, the casino narrative and we ah. want to change it so we wanted to build something that that lasts longer and the, the lonesome pawn therefore work in, in this setup where like you you have to you either repay them and you get custody of the collateral or if you miss the payments and in the, in the near future, if you miss the installments, then you know the collateral will be auctioned and then there is some sort of a procedure. But you should you shouldn't be exposed to this volatility. You're like you shouldn't be exposed to the ride and like the, the chance of by just like missing missing a dip and uh, forgetting about you know your your CDP and like the MakerDAO sense or your ADA loan. You shouldn't shouldn't be exposed to losing something that you want to potentially keep for like the next five, ten, or fifteen years. This is really cool, and I like the narrative that that you're seeing because that's the biggest problem with these like flash type loans or these loans where you can have automatic liquidation events. That's what caused things like you had like the Terra Luna collapses, but you also prevent people from being able to say to you, "Well, aren't people like just putting up money as collateral, borrowing money, then rehypothecating that money, and you're just like rehypothecating the same money over and over and over again?" But you saw a, a lot of this happen, so you're not. Like you started this, you started this company in a hackathon. You have a background working at the Ethereum Foundation, so you kind of like saw 
the problems that happened with the lending market during the, the DeFi spring that led to, to, I guess, this bear market that we got into. Um, yeah, I mean, basically, like, sit through that, just like keeping, keeping my hands tied and just like focusing on, on my day-to-day work. And it was, you know, like being through like several like market cycles since like 2011, like you see a lot of people like come and go and you see the different characters in, in crypto yeah, as the yeah. industry. You know, I understand, I understand like why and even like even just like talking to my family and friends and like explaining crypto and being the annoying guy that like talks about crypto all the time. Like I get, I get why people are skeptical of the industry uh, because there is there's definitely a lot of like shady stuff and a lot of like unfilled promises. And like to me, you know, the, the way to kind of like change the narrative is to start working on something which I believe like has the has the long term potential okay. and actually like fits into the, you know the future where I wanted C crypto to go. So you've you've built this system where the terms are fixed for the entire loan's duration, and. So the buyer, the borrower doesn't need to worry about the the fluctuations of the collateral, and all that matters is that you pay back the loan before it expires. So in that situation, how do you prevent? So you, how do you prevent the situation where, for a very long time, a person's underwater on their mortgage, like the value of the collateral goes below what the value, you know, the, the still the initial principle of the of the of the loan. But I guess you can you can offer you can offer some type of insurance. And then put that insurance into like a liquidity pool and then offer people the ability to like contribute to that and then by earning some of that profit. Or you can just make sure your due diligence is really, really good against the yeah, person exactly. itself. You're not just you're not just lending against the collateral, you're lending against the due diligence of the person. Uh, exactly. I mean it's um so first of all, because like now the lenders have like higher exposure, like if they if they pick Collateral, which is complete nonsense, then I mean, you know, they're, they're there to blame. And I'm not saying I'm not saying we're trying to like create like a unsecured market from that perspective, but I feel like it, it ties to the appraisal process. Yeah. So currently, what we are seeing in terms of the deals like happening in, in kind of the the NFT markets or kind of the long tail assets in in crypto in general, like these terms are usually and to be to be kind of realistic right like these terms are between like 20 to maybe 40 percent loan to value which is i mean you know you could say well it's nowhere near like a, a mortgage case where you'd have like 80 percent loan to value or something of that sort but they're super early i mean like we, what we see what we see in similar types of loans in in terms of like stocks which are also like super volatile but the tools for appraising them are are there right this is this is like long-standing industry like those terms are are around like seventy percent, eighty, like or hundred percent in case of like bonds and these types of like assets. And you know, I'm I'm a believer in crypto. I I think the tooling to get these appraisals right will get there eventually. So right now we are we're kind of still in this like high risk situations where the the terms for the borrowers like aren't super amazing, but they have the optionality. And in my opinion, like you know, in in the next like three to five years that will tremendously improve because like there will be a variety of assets that already now like you have assets that we are talking about is like blue chips right like let that be let that be nfts or like even DAO tokens and like there is a lot of projects focusing just on appraisal of of these but down the line like what i what i think it's inevitable it's like you know the 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 reward assets like coming becoming like tokenized or or having the like the now paper based derivatives and that kind of stuff to actually be like tokenized on chain as well and and boom like then you can just like take those as as a new asset class and use exactly the same system exactly the same protocol so in in my opinion the the securities for uh, or the assurances for like having more sensible terms will will only improve from from now and again, I'm not saying that's the case for all of the assets. There's all obviously a lot of a lot of like junk lying around. Yeah, I think there is a, there is a still wide spectrum of assets where this makes complete sense and where people will be willing to take like five year or ten year exposure to those assets. So how do you? Pri- I was going to ask you how do you price them, but I'm just looking through some of the loans here. How do you? What will be the first non digital asset that you guys will you ever try to do like? You know, physical assets like, like properties, for example, or something like that. So, so the focus, the focus upon is to basically like be the, the protocol for the assets that are already tokenized. Okay. So, like we ourselves like wouldn't go and 
uh, and try to build like a... That's smart because, yeah, other people are doing that. Yeah. And and also, like, again, we, we work on off the thesis that like these assets will, will come eventually. In terms of the appraisals, uh, and that's where we already like touched like subjects as you know like compliance and so on. Like we we really act as a as a marketplace. So we are aggregating data with the appraisals. Uh, like if you if you go to some of the asset pages currently available for for most like blue chip NFTs, we basically aggregate data from a variety of providers, uh, including some of the market data on like OpenSea and and Looksware and so on. And we give the option to like both sides of the table to to say like hey how much how much this asset is is like worth to you and again there is there is a spectrum of of cases so like if you're you know if you're a collector who would be willing to like keep that asset they, they definitely provide like better terms than just like someone who is uh, who's looking to just lend money with like a greater certainty of of returns this is a very 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 cool protocol and I think you're going to be highly, highly successful because you're going to see a lot of other type of companies offer the ability to that, that are going to say, hey, we're, what we do is we help you tokenize your physical asset. And then they're going to offer your protocol as the protocol where you can go and then borrow against it. And you can have a relationship with those companies too. I think I saw there's a company, 4k.com, that I can take my, like I have old physical Bitcoins the casacious coins or whatever, you can send it to them in the mail and they will insure them and then hold on to them and they're safe, but issue your ERC20 token. That's for the the value of the coin. And then you could I could potentially go here and borrow against it. So you're borrowing against a physical Bitcoin. Yeah, exactly. And like we we actually will talk to several several companies that are doing similar things for like collectible items. There are some companies working on this for real estate. Obviously, it's it's. I mean, if you mm. if you start like talking about tokenized like real world assets, like you you definitely get deeper into the question of like trust and like trust to these providers because like then you start involving centralized entities. Uh, but it doesn't change the function of the protocol. I mean, the, the protocol still can like match you know people from like different backgrounds and expectations, so it can work like completely, you know, in a in a DeFi way where you basically just consider the the decentralized assets or the ones that are like fully living on chain, and then you have all of the certainties that you know the on chain transparency provides. Or if you are interested in like these types of deals, you can do it as well. Like you can even you can even and there's a variety of features. I mean, as mentioned, we just started. There's a variety of features that we are working on, like including some sort of credit scoring, which is completely optional. Like it's we don't so want cool. to enforce this on someone. Like we don't want to do the KYC for for like all of the all of the stuff that happens. But there's also another reason why the protocol shouldn't be functional for for like assets that require KYC whitelist and that, that kind of stuff. Because still, it just like lives on chain. Like anyone can use it, and if you can uh, if you can provide a compliant asset that that just like will work with the protocol, then then use it. You know, I just want to ask you before we end the show, why do you think this is important? It's a, it's a perfect question to to finish with. Like, I, I think this is the, the protocol and like building things like this. It just creates the optionality. I mean, it you know it it creates something that the new generation that like uses these sort of like digital assets as like normal things can have access to the same like financial service as the the rest of the world with the with the real world ones. So for me, this is just like basically creating. One of the components, it was inevitable. If we didn't create it, like someone else would. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> thank you, man. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Well, thank you as well, Charlie. Looking forward to hear more of your episodes. Thanks so much again for inviting us and letting us to spread the mission of Pawn. And yeah, hope to see you soon somewhere. I'm really excited that this podcast, The Charlie Shrem Show, is now powered by Waxman. I think I met the CEO, David Waxman, back in. 2015 or something at an Ethereum meetup, and he told me that the future belongs to the fearless. And that is why they are producing the show right by my side. What an amazing team we have now. It's so amazing. You guys have been hearing some great updates and following along. If you don't know, Waxman is the leading global strategy and communications firm advising the next generation of companies in Web3, disruptive technology, Bitcoin, crypto, fintech, artificial intelligence, and venture capital. Waxman's clients are ambitious leaders and businesses that are on the frontier of this whole new economy because they really do believe that the future belongs to us and we're the ones building it. With services across 
everything from digital marketing, public relations, social media, investor relations, financial communications, recruiting, and public affairs. They're helping companies and individuals like myself seize the business opportunities that we deserve, overcome challenges that we all are going to face and achieve sustained success. Head over to Waxman to learn more. You guys are going to love them. We have them in the show notes. Check it all out. It's W-A-C-H-S-M-A-N.com. That's W-A-C-H-S-M-A-N.com. It seems like, for some reason, with recent moves by the the Biden administration and you know the current administration that we have right now here in 2023, it seems more and more likely that this Operation Checkpoint 2.0 is underway. We saw last week Coinbase and, and many other crypto companies are contemplating their exit from the U.S. and the pressure for regulatory clarity is at an all-time high from the crypto community. I think, like you guys know, when we talk to these guests, there's just that's the problem. There's just no clarity in anything. We're sitting here on this podcast trying to come up with legal frameworks, and I should be the one, not the one. You know, we we shouldn't be on these shows the smartest people in the room. The smartest people in the room should be out with the regulators working on these things. My guest is one of those people, so we're gonna. I'm very excited to to introduce him today. In this theme of of banking and financial services, we're talking to three different companies within this sector of crypto about their views on the regulatory landscape, how it's affecting their operations, and what they predict will happen next for the financial side of crypto going into 2023, 2024. And I'm very excited to to introduce my guest today, Joshua Garcia. Josh, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me. You're out there at Consensus, of course. It's my honor, and and on behalf of the listeners, thank you for taking the time out of your schedule. You're at Consensus right now in Austin. There's a lot going on. Yeah, you were just telling me that it's nice being there because you were saying that you're getting all the lawyers together. You guys only see each other a couple of times a year. That's right. A lot of lawyers work remotely these days. You know, it's a post-COVID world, and we relish the opportunity to kind of get together, complain about all the regulatory issues that are going on, <laughs> come up with interesting, you know, legal hacks. And just, 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 just enjoy the like the the camaraderie of the struggle, right? Because because it, it is a bit of a struggle to advise clients in a really tricky, uncertain regulatory environment. It takes a toll, and you want to complain about it. So we do a lot of complaining about the regulators at, at these <laughs> conferences. <laughs> Regula- complaining though, because we want good results. You, you uh, your company is consulting company. Is it Quetzal or Quetzal? Uh, Quetzal. Oh, Kitsal, very nice. You work closely with uh, developers, funds, exchanges, NFT platforms, investors, anyone in the in the space. You focus on helping them create a, like a sound crypto policy for whatever they're trying to do. But on the other side, you also work with some in- top international law firms. You've been featured on Coin Center, Bitcoin Magazine, CoinDesk. And at the same time, you've been able to present at the Money Transmitter Regulators Association, New York City Bar Association. Uh, it's nice to like you get to, to talk to both sides. And at the same time, I feel like most of the time, it's fo- people on both sides are just like folks like you and I. When, at what point did regulations become so political? I think they're inherently political. Sometimes they are not politicized because we don't understand their effect on us. For instance, Coin Center right now did a filing for the, what could be, you know, an obscure tax rule, but they're seeking clarity from from the IRS. They want the rule to be different, and I believe they're engaged in some legal process to make that the case. But this tax rule, it, you know, a lot of folks just don't understand how tax works, how the IRS works. And my understanding of this rule, I'm not a tax attorney, sure. is if the IRS gets its way, then peer to peer transactions over ten thousand dollars. If, if I send you funds over, you know, crypto rails, then I'll need to know your social security number or I'll need to know personal information about you in order to make a filing with the IRS. If I have that understanding right, that's not a great thing, but it's not being politicized, right? It's, it, it's, I think it's not being politicized because it's an, a bit of a, like a deep in the weeds tax rule. Ah, uh, yeah, good point. But, but I think it is political. It's very political. The idea that if I want to send a friend of mine a, a decent amount of money, that I have to get their private per- personal information in order to do so and then report that to the government. That's a that's a political issue. The so, onus on it was always on the financial institution to collect that type of information. Right. That, and that's why this rule is kind of a weird, wonky rule. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I'd, I'd read up on the rule more. I, I, last time I looked at this was like six, eight months ago. But it is, it is a strange outcome. It is a strange rule. Coin Center has, I think, 
published their filing on on their website for those curious to take a look at it. You think this whole Operation Choke Point is like some sort of real memo that was put out by some top-level politicians out there to like actually, you know, choke out crypto companies and and Bitcoin folks from from our bank accounts is or is it more of like just a mixture of it actually happening and then the media kind of making it worse than it is? I am not sure. What I'll say is I, I'd be surprised if um, any government administration was this coordinated. And this <laughs> That's whatever. Right? <laughs> you know, in the bank sector, in, in the security sector, in, in the commodities world, there's been a lot of bubbling for years, right? None, none of the, the FDIC's moves or the SEC's moves are really like, you know, all that surprising given the past few years of their interest and in intensi- intensifying curiosity and concern about the space. So it could be a lot of siloed interests coming to a head at once. It could be maybe there's a piece of paper somewhere. But um, but if there's a piece of paper somewhere, remember when we talked about Operation Choke Point, we mentioned 2.0, right? So in there was a 1.0 where the government was at the end of that Operation Choke Point 1.0, the government was sued. Right, or investigated. They did an investigation to DOJ attorneys to see if there's any wrongdoing there. And uh, they were cleared. That after the investigation, they said, you know what, the attorneys acted properly at the DOJ in, in asking for the Ferreira subpoenas. And so Operation 1.0 is where you learn, if, if this is 2.0, it's where you learn your, your mistakes. And, and if one of the mistakes is, you know, we had emails yeah. back and forth at the DOJ, they're not going to write anything down, you know? So if if this is if they're pulling lessons from the first time the first go around then they're not going to have something on paper probably. The world is a big place and there's a lot of other countries that are welcoming bitcoin and crypto companies. So like I mean what's the goal why kick everything offshore? I don't understand I, it. I ask the same question once a week. Uh, I ask it to, <laughs> to yourself. To, yeah. No, to attorneys, I ask it to myself. I like I, I sit and I think and I you know part of it's my job. And and I don't have any good answers for that. I, I really, I, I think one, one thing I've learned in the exploration of, like, of what it could be is for Liz Warren, for example, you know, I don't think any constituents in Massachusetts are really going to be upset that she's going after crypto. I, I, like, I don't think she's really like kind of diminishing her, her personal base in Massachusetts by taking an anti-crypto stance. No, because I, I don't understand the logic of it, but I think it doesn't hurt her. Because those those small little districts that she represents and all these other like gladiator, you know, politicians do, like we have them here in Florida too. We have this like guy, Spencer Roach, you know, he represents like some no-name county here in Florida. And he just comes up with the craziest type of laws that never get passed, but just to rile up the base and everything. And it doesn't hurt his image because, you know, the, the people that he's representing out in that county, they got nothing else better going on. Yeah. And, and maybe I'm watching too much succession, but... No, it's a great show. It feels <laughs> like entertainment, right? Politics feels like a little bit like entertainment. You have to stay top of mind for your constituents. Yeah. You have to make sure they, they feel like they're looking out for you. Politicking in, in the dark is a way to maybe not get reelected. Hmm. But I'm not a politician. I don't know what motivates them. You know, I try to focus on what the rules are and how to how to help folks work with them as they are. I get how you can help the banking side of things. And there's that whole segment. I'm moving on to like the securities side of things. Mm-hmm. Imagine a world where all crypto companies can and tokens can fall into compliance because the the rules around accreditation, accredited investor, have been changed. Do you think then that would move the needle? Because I read something this morning that they're trying to add, the SEC is trying to add some new changes to the accredited investor rules, allowing for like there to be a test. And if you can prove that you're a qualified individual, then you could essentially buy you know, a security or a private placement and maybe down the road securities tokens. I like this rule. I, I like that the SEC is looking to change this rule. And I, I think that it doesn't solve the problem for the crypto industry. What it, what it might solve is more people can get into ICOs in the U.S., but I don't think it solves the fact that you have to register pretty... If, if you're a crypto company now, in all likelihood, you're going to feel like you have to register your ICO with the SEC. And you mean like ICO is like the, the term that was coined in like 
2016 yeah. when you know back in the days when you can just like send money to an ethereum address and they would spit you back out these tokens i mean those were crazy days but nowadays these are companies that want to launch like actual like tokenized equity and revenue sharing tokens where like that you hold a token and you get a piece of the revenue of whatever the business is i mean these are real great businesses and products and services i mean you could revolutionize that you the private the private placement market in in real estate is only like $8 billion. If we could move that just into crypto, that would make a huge difference in our industry. But the problem is, is that liquidity is siloed. And 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 most of that liquidity is going to exist on like decentralized exchanges and all these other places. No one want, no one can register for a securities token exchange because 99% of us are not accredited investors because you need to have like millions and millions of dollars in the bank or something like that. Yeah, a credit. It's not. It's not that high of a standard. Uh, you need a million in the bank. Or okay, need, who has a million need, dollars in the bank? Like, and we're talking about. Fair. Yeah, yeah. We want to create crypto is for everyone. That that's the whole point. Well, if a if a crypto offering is is a clear securities offering, it's not for everyone, right? It's like you know, crypto pulling in regulated financial instruments. Like, let's say you know we have yeah. a crypto platform that just lets people do complex. Uh, derivatives. That's not, no, it's still crypto, but it's not for everyone. And it's still going to be highly regulated. So, you know, the fact that folks can maybe point to a wallet in the future and say, look, my million is in USDC, not in a bank account or take a test, I think is a good thing. But it doesn't have really anything to do with fixing the the fact that some crypto is going to lapse into highly regulated, a highly regulated world. That's going to close the doors for a lot of folks who you know, might be interested and curious about it, but yeah. because they're in the U.S., they get shut out. That's always going to be a problem. But it's but that that problem is global, right? That that is not just a U.S. problem. If I'm in Australia, ASIC, the Australian Securities uh, Regulator, they have rules around you know who can participate in in securities offerings or complex complex derivatives. Does this European MICA rule cover it too? No, no, it doesn't cover securities issues. Uh, it it purely covers uh, like a lot of the payments and and other rules. So, so there is no solution then, because as far as we're concerned, crypto is always going to fall under securities regulations. And I guess my view is that there are cryptos that are securities, there are cryptos that are commodities, there are cryptos that we don't know how to categorize. And so, like, how do you create an umbrella regulation to let people know when they embark on a journey to start a company where yeah. they fall in the, you know, in that bucket? Yeah. Step one is taxonomy. That that's what Europe did. First, they said let's let's determine a common taxonomy for how to categorize these assets. We haven't done that in the U.S. You know, there people have tried to pass taxonomy bills, but we're wedging cryptocurrency into language written 80 years ago, right now, in in, in various laws, right? Like the definition of income from on, under law, tax law, the definition of money transmitter, the definition of security. Uh, definition of commodity. We're just we're just wedging crypto into these definitions. We're not de- determining a taxonomy. Until we do that, then you know we won't be able to really categorize one project versus another project and, and give people certainty. But I think taxonomy is the first step. Tell me what the first step would be there. Like, how do you, what are we trying to categorize? Like the people, the the tokens themselves, the the different like we're just breaking down the different classifications of like what a smart contract is. Like, how deep do we need to get? Yeah, and, and this is a difficult part because you ask an engineer like who knows Solidity how to categorize different tokens, and they'll they'll give you numbers. They'll say some twenty one, twenty. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but, yes, but yeah, so lawyer, they're not going to give you numbers. You know, if you ask a regulator, That's so funny. there's there's a massive disconnect between how the engineers think about this and how the lawyers and regulators think about this. And it all of the taxonomy projects that I've seen involve. 15 to 20 people in a room trying trying to figure this out. And yeah. they all have different starting places and it, it leads to contention. Some people want to start with, is this like meant for, what's the purpose of this thing? Is it meant for payments? Is it meant for investment? Is it meant for co- pure consumer use? Like by consumer use, I mean like, is it a token that's going to extinguish when I use it, like a ticket on, for a train or an event or something like that? It, it's really, it's a tough problem, yeah. but it requires people sitting in a room engaging with regulators. And that's, there's a blocker there, right? We can't do that. We've tried over over many years now to, to talk to regulators. And it's it's not that easy to 
to get real progress. A lot of people are saying, though, like, and even in my intro, I said the Biden administration, but that administration has only lasted been for like a couple of years. And this problem has been going on for a decade. I mean, I'll tell you, in 2011, when I started BitInstant, I was getting kicked out of bank accounts left and right. This is not a new problem. So it's not a political one. We can't wait for the next administration and pray that they'll be better. What needs to happen? So what is happening now is, is I think, what needs to happen. People are still building. Uh, we're still getting clients coming in with really interesting, innovative projects. It's it's still an industry that's iterating on its like you know its mistakes and its gaps, and it's very much alive and kicking. And I think all that needs to happen is it needs to stay alive and kicking. And I think it will because if you think of all the talent that went from like a Goldman Sachs or you know like a big four accounting firm into crypto in 2017, 2018, 2019, are those people going to go back? You know, yeah. Once you, once you like get bitten by the bug, you stay in it. You're for, staying in it. Yeah, it's figure it hard. out. It's really hard to go back. Yeah. So you get my listeners are like startup founders themselves. You know, we got entrepreneurs, we got CEOs of 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 Web two businesses that want to come into Web three and get involved. Like, how do your first meetings go? You guys are like a full service consulting and advisory firm. You know, helping you know all these different companies come into compliance. Like, what are the what what question do you ask first when you meet a new project that could potentially go through your pipe? Like, do you have a system? How do you break down yeah. these projects? I like to do immediately kind of a deep dive into the the funds flow and the and the technology. So if they're issuing any kind of a token, I like to understand right at the outset how's the money getting to you and what value are you giving out? And what are who are the organizations involved in that? And if there's a smart contract involved, I always ask about, you know, right now who's who can change it, who can it administer, who's gonna who's gonna deploy it, and how in the future, you know, how much control do people have over elements of that smart contract? And and I think asking those questions gets very testy sometimes because a lot of startups will have marketing that says we're decentralized or we plan to be decentralized. But when you ask those kinds of questions, it's like, oh, okay, you know, Joe has the freaking codes to the smart con the admin co- key to the smart contract and can he can move funds? He can move funds around really? <laughs> okay. That's that's good to know, right? <laughs> so and and what's nice is you know you have to tell your lawyer these things. So there there is a function in in the US legal system, right, where we have attorney-client privilege, people feel like they can tell us things and they don't have to worry about that information getting out. And that and the sanctity of that allows me to get that information from people and have honest and open conversations about yeah. compliance. And and that's so that's why I like to start there. You become like a therapist for some of these people too, probably. Oh my goodness. I yeah. yeah. We, we we don't have to get into that. But yeah. I don't I don't I'm a I'm a bit of a people pleaser. So I don't I don't mind that too much. But you know, some some lawyers just kind of they roll their eyes at it. Yeah, no, I I get it because I've it's it's one of these things, but that's part of the job. I don't like doing anything where I don't know what I don't know. And it seems like more and more, I don't like that I'm learning too much. I'm learning so many new things. And it's like a little bit scary because it's just like, how much more did I not know about? And then you're like, you have to take a step back. So you're probably like, these people build up this marketing. And we talk on the show a lot about the path to decentralization and the path to immutability. So it's totally cool if... It's not going to be immutable on day one, or it's not going to be fully decentralized on, on day one. But what you're saying is their marketing and their roadmap and their disclosures have to be honest about that. Yeah, I, I, I'm a big advocate for either keeping your mouth shut or just saying what's true. And um, a lot of the times it boils down to, you know, just don't say anything until, until you're ready. A lot of people overpromise in this industry and yeah. that's a problem. You know, it can, it can really get you into trouble. True story. True story. Well, you've definitely given us a lot to think about today. And, and thank you for, for speaking now and, and giving us all this information. Because I know the listeners are going to be very interested. Your website is ketsal.com. That's and right. you can, they can follow you on Twitter at same at Kitsal. And we'll have it in all the show notes. Josh Garcia, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Very, 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 very interesting. You gave me a lot of food for thought on this topic that we're following through this uh, 2023 year. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks for having me. Take care. We're 
joined by a new friend of mine, Seamus Rocca. You're the CEO of Zappo Bank. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Charlie. So speaking of The Rock, you are a true Gibraltarian. You're from Gibraltar. You don't meet how many you don't meet a lot of people. It's like you're almost like mm-hmm. a, a tourist attraction in and of itself. <laughs> yeah, I always joke that you know there's thirty thousand Gibraltarians. And I always say to people, when you meet a Gibraltarian, it's like winning the lottery. In fact, you probably have <laughs> higher probability of winning the lottery when you buy a ticket than of meeting a Gibraltarian, you know, 30,000 out of 8 billion. Yeah. But you know, there's not many of us. So yeah, I was born and bred here and you know, spent the last 30 years working, traveling around the world. And, you know, Zappo brought me back, back home. So I've been living here for the last two. You've like held various banking positions in different places of the world. I see from like Standard Chartered and Credit Suisse in different places, which is, you know, you sat in the financial center of Europe, arguably the world in London. You worked in New York. Now you're back in Gibraltar sitting there, right? Like kind of like at the epicenter of of the crypto world right now. I want to understand before I ask my questions, Zappo is a, you guys are a bank. Where do you operate? Can, Can Americans have accounts? What's what's the status right now? Sure. So we are a bank based here in Gibraltar. So we have two regulated entities. We've got a bank and a, and a VASP. For, and, and essentially, when you join to Sapo Bank in the account itself, in the app, on your phone, we, we mix those two services together. So to you, it feels seamless. But that's how it, essentially we, we allow you to have you know, crypto and banking services all, all into one. So we essentially serve the world from here, from, from Gibraltar, except the U.S. So we used to have a business in the U.S. It was mostly institutional focus. And we found that our value proposition of having a dollar bank account with Bitcoin was something that resonated a lot more in, in emerging markets in particular. So Latin America, Africa, Asia, whereas you know, in the U.S., it was very difficult for us to compete versus you know, local U.S. banks and local uh, exchanges. So we decided that you know, we would pivot and become this offshore bank. And it's an offshore bank that can serve the whole world, uh, except the U.S. And it just happens to be a bank that has a savings account that pays you 4%, but also has a Bitcoin wallet that pays you 1%. So we, we bring those, those things together. This makes no sense to me. Here you have like highly regulated, amazing products that offer like great value proposition to customers all over the world by an OG company. It's founded, I think, like 10 years ago. You probably you guys are probably celebrating ago, yeah. your 10 year anniversary now in the space. And it's like the United States has become this carve out. And it's just so confusing to me because here I am like, you know, <laughs> I've been podcasting for four years. I've been in this space forever. Wences, you're the founder of the company, was like my, my, my big brother because he was like helping guide the early Bitcoin community, which were filled with like kids. And I just going back in my early emails, just invited, inviting us, the New York Bitcoin community to like dinners and stuff like that. And, and, uh, and getting things together when I launched, tried to launch a Bitcoin debit card and my letting the press know early was its ultimate failure of the product because MasterCard didn't end up wanting to do it. But like he gave some pointers on that. And, and then all of a sudden, like, um, I open up the u- the newspaper here every day in the U.S. and it's like, of course, we have all these banking failures. People are still a bit afraid keeping their money in these smaller banks. But then you got the rest of the world embracing this, embracing it in such a beautiful way. There's so many good things happening. It's like, where did the like the what is going on? Yeah, I think you know we our experience in the U.S. when we had the business was. You know, you had to go to every state to get an MTL license. Then the crypto space was just starting to get regulated. We had a bit license in New York State. And if you, you were, gave it up? Yeah. Oh, my because, God. Because, Charlie, if you, were, if you serve the U.S., you can't focus on anything else. Because, you know, it, it's basically, you know, the United States being sure. lots of different states. And everyone, every state is regulated differently. And, and therefore, to run a business there, financial services, is, you need a huge amount of capital. It's complex. And bringing it all together in the early days of crypto is just really hard. And we, and we said to ourselves, look, the world is a big place. We're better off trying to serve the rest of the world and just carve out the US. And that was a decision that we already made about three years ago. And then off late, you know, the, the, the sort of the nature of the conversation has seems to have shifted. You know, the government there seems to have gone quite anti, anti-crypto. 
And I think I think it's short-sighted, is my personal view. I think, you know, nobody after the 2007 financial crisis where Lehman's and Bear Stearns crashed, nobody decided that they were ever going to use a bank again, right? It's it's a financial yeah. service that we need. It just needed more regulation and more oversight, right? And, you know, FTX happened, and I think regulators have got worried, got concerned, but they've decided to shut down crypto. And it's a bit like, well... It's almost like saying that every bank out there is badly run and you shouldn't touch yeah. it. I think it's very short-sighted. And then they tried to blame those other bank failures on the fact that they bank crypto businesses and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. When you look at you know the failings of the balance sheet and, and of course, interest rates going up and a lot of banks just weren't ready for that, it's got absolutely nothing to do with, with crypto. So, look, it, it is what it is. It is unfortunate for the US, though, because I think that other countries are going to capitalize from it. You know, you look at Hong Kong, they've just announced the fact that, you know, they, they're opening up uh, crypto again to retail yeah, customers. Yeah, totally caught off guard by that one. Yeah, well, I think, look, you know, Hong Kong is essentially the offshore arm of China, isn't it? And it's their sort of window to the world. You know, Hong Kong is very well placed to become a very strong powerhouse in the, in the crypto space. And again, what that's going to do, it's it's a massively missed opportunity for the U.S. who could have easily run uh, the crypto space. Why? Because despite all the noise about debt ceiling, what have you, Charlie, the U.S. and particularly the dollar will remain the dominant currency of the world, particularly around trade for the foreseeable future. So dominating crypto as well would have made perfect sense. So, but look, it is it is what it is. From like a law enforcement perspective, though. From the act, like I want to get down into it. Like, what do we care about? We care about like fighting crime. We care about like stopping really bad people from really doing really bad things, whether it's the dollar or with Bitcoin or a cryptocurrency. From a law enforcement perspective, isn't it easier to work with onshore companies than to like be sending subpoenas out all over the world to these like companies that you hope are regulated in a similar way? Like, it's just they're making their job harder. It doesn't make sense to me. On the one hand, you've got to create an environment where people openly want to work with you as a regulator. So, you know, the, the 2008 financial crisis is a, is a good example. Banks had no choice but to work with a regulator because they needed liquidity. So therefore, people would come to the government and say, I need to borrow money. Well, if you want to borrow money, these are the new controls and rules and regulations that need to be in place, right? And that makes perfect sense. So I think in the crypto space, after FTX, it was an opportunity for those of us in the crypto space who are you know, mature players want to do things the right way. And you said it yourself, Zappo has been in the space for 10 years. So you know, we've always thought regulation, sought to do things the right way. It was an opportunity to sort of develop the space, make it more regulated, make sure that all the touch points that the customers are engaging with, treat them fairly, that we've got enough capital. You know, in the same way as a bank, as a bank would, right? Sure. So that's, what, that's what we're trying to do. We, we deal on the crypto side, the vast, we basically apply the same laws and regulations as we do for the bank because it's still financial services. And even though the crypto regulation might not be exactly the same, I think from the point of view of being fair to the customer, you owe it to the customer to you know, keep sure. their funds safe. So how can the regulators make sure that they create an environment where people actually want to go and work with them? Whereas now they've created this environment where people are scared of the regulator that if you touch crypto, they're going to come and smack you on the head. So it's, it, it's basically they pushed it back years. You guys work, um, except not just like not just like regular bank style, you know, mm. wire transfers and ACH and things like that. But you also work with Bitcoin and crypto deposits and withdrawals. Also, Lightning. How's that working? Do you see like a future where other all financial institutions are using Lightning, and then you could kind of connect that through? Well, I think you know, right now the use case for Lightning is more around near speed and, and saving costs. So for the people who know in the crypto space, Lightning is something that gets everybody very excited, and rightly so. But I think, you know, adoption and use cases are still, you know, and it's still in its infancy. But I think that over time, I see a world where Bitcoin becomes somewhat of a multinational currency, and therefore you can move money around using Bitcoin as a denomination and, and therefore, from that perspective, as you increase transaction volumes, you need technology like Lightning to be able to facilitate it. So I think for me, what excites me about Lightning and, and, and all sorts of innovation around Bitcoin and the Bitcoin protocol is that it creates this space where intelligent, smart people can innovate on top of that Bitcoin protocol. Uh, Bitcoin protocol. And I think that yeah, there, are use, 
there are use cases in the future that you and I won't even have thought about today in the same way as who would have predicted in 1998 that all of your shopping would be done online via Amazon, <laughs> you know? Um, so no I way. think it's, it's going to be a little bit the same with Lightning and some of the future use cases. For us today, the important thing was for people in the crypto space to realize that we're neither a traditional bank nor an exchange. You know, we're in that sweet spot in the middle where you get a deposit guaranteed bank account earning dollars. You know, we're not staking the money or whatever. Your right. money is in US treasuries and money market accounts earning your real money. But this is an account where if you send me Tether or USDC, I know how to handle crypto. So I buy it off you and convert it into your dollar account for you. So essentially, as far as you're concerned, you can use a stablecoin to replace ACH and SWIFT because it's much cheaper, much, fast, much faster. So, you know, Lightning is a little bit the same. We can use Lightning and say, hey, you know, you can make a payment, but we're also going to add the facility for you to be able to send us Bitcoin through Lightning. And then you can decide, well, does it go into the Bitcoin account? But if you want, on the fly, you can send it into your dollar account and vice versa. So it creates a great opportunity for us to be able to innovate Yeah, in, with our product. It allows people to create like multinational business at the same time without having to like have multiple type of accounts. But also a lot of times you're sending like individual vendor payments using crypto, but sometimes you're also getting paid in dollars. There's a whole thing. Yeah. But um, how else do you, do you help grow people's wealth? Well, you know, if you think about um, what Zappo is at its core. We started off as a Bitcoin custodian, just helping people keep their assets safe, right? But then we kind of wanted to grow that and say, look, we're a savings proposition. Well, a savings proposition would mean that you need to earn interest. So the way that we do it is saying, okay, if you're outside of the US, having a dollar bank account is something of value. You know, if you're in the US, you take it for granted that you can have a dollar bank account. If you're in Nigeria, Lebanon, uh, Argentina, uh, South Africa, anywhere where you're worried about country risk, you're worried about yeah. macroeconomic environment and inflation, having a dollar bank account is is a luxury. It's oh, every that, Argentinian is probably really excited about. <laughs> Wentz, exactly. Yeah, that's Wentz is that's where his whole background is from, right? Exactly right, and, and he lived it himself personally, right? And that's what motivated him to made it so exciting for him to get involved in Bitcoin because Bitcoin is a store of value. So. From that perspective, we offer a savings proposition where your store of value can be a dollar bank account that pays you 4.1% interest or a Bitcoin account, which is in you know, the safest custodian in the world, but also happens to pay you 1%. From that perspective, you've got this savings account and through that interest, you can grow your wealth. So, so we, cool. we see ourselves as a secondary wallet. You know, People will already have primary bank accounts for their local currencies. But if you want to keep ten, twenty thousand dollars somewhere safe, somewhere where you know we don't do mortgage lending, we don't do crazy stuff with the balance sheet, we just invest it very safely, securely. It's safe because it's deposit guaranteed. It's safe because we're a bank. It's safe in every possible sense of that word. Safe. You can trust us with your money. It's a great way to grow your wealth. That sounds like a lot of fun, though, to be able to work in financial services and and Bitcoin at the same time. Do you go to a lot of events? I try not to. I, I think. You know, I I've always been of the view that you got to let the product speak for itself. Sure. You know, and, and when it, it comes to events, there's there's always a lot of hoo ha about you know this new. If it's a crypto event, there's always a lot of hoo ha about the latest coin or technology yeah. coming out. And if you go to a financial services, a more financial services event, then you know not so much now. It's changed, but a few years ago, it was almost like I was treated like a criminal. You know, just because I <laughs> mentioned that mentioned the word Bitcoin or crypto. So, you know, that, that's certainly changed in the last few years, especially, you know, when Bitcoin went to 65,000, yeah. it, was, it was hard to ignore it. Yeah, my popularity changes with the Bitcoin price. <laughs> I bet it does, right? So with events, I, I, try, <laughs> I try not to, if I'm perfectly honest. But I think, you know, now that we're trying to grow the company, oh, we want to make sure people know that we exist, right? We've yeah. we got to get out there and, and be a bit more visible. Yeah, it's kind of cool, like building a, a business where, where you're the rest of the world. It's like yeah. not the U.S. It's the rest of the world. You're seeing what else everyone's doing. When I go over, when I go over to Europe, I'm here in Florida now, and I just came back from Europe. When I go over to Europe, I really it reminds me that every everyone needs to travel a lot more because it's very easy to like get to in into the place where we live and like the bubble that we live in and the way that we think and things like that. It's very yeah. important to travel. Well, I think you know that's one of the for me one of the best use cases for for Zappa, right? So I. I left Gibraltar when I was 18, traveled around the world, and 
every time I moved, I needed a new bank account. I think I've got something like seven bank accounts around the world. Yeah. Oh my God. Uh, and then you've got this idea that now, especially post-COVID, remote work has become normal. People demanding remote work and be able to moving around. And depending on your family heritage or circumstance, you know, people find visas or different. I've got multiple passports or whatever. So we live in a world that's much more global, much easier for people to travel around. People can work remotely and therefore work from anywhere. And, and for financial services, if you think about it, it's still very tied down to your location and where you live. Yep. Right? Um, and, and we're trying to change that. We're trying to say, look, we're this offshore bank account where anybody from anywhere can open an account here. And you don't need to move that bank account when you move. Your bank account sort of follows you around digitally. So you could be working, you could be living in Brazil because you like the beach, working for a European fintech, and you get paid in euros. You can receive those euros into your dollar Zappo bank account, earn your 4.1%, have your card, spend your money. If you want to buy Bitcoin or not, it's up to you. Uh, or the other way around, you could get paid in Bitcoin yeah. and, have it, and have it in this account. And therefore, Every time you decide to move, if you're a digital nomad, you don't need to change bank accounts. Or, you know, if you get paid and, you know, you want to move money around in a different currency, it just makes your life a lot easier. And I think we're going to see more of that. This idea of, you know, banks need to be fixed to your, you know, jurisdiction where you live. Yeah. I don't see how that works in a global world. No, you're right. And as, as it grows, as crypto grows and this whole nomadic world grows too, it allows us, I'm looking at it from like an investment perspective. like. My friend and I in Austria, we want to like renovate some old buildings and turn them into rental apartments. But he's Austrian and I'm American. So first we have to like split with a bunch of other people who live all over the world too. split how we're going to like fund the account to pay for renovations. And then when the, the, the rental comes in in euros, how do we actually eventually split that? It's like it creates a whole multiple accounting process. But with it seems like with Zappo Bank, it would just be all in one product in the accounting for, for everything. The accounting would just be a lot easier. <laughs> well, I think, you know, doing business accounts is something that maybe is in the you know future roadmap. At the moment, we're much more focused on retail, but it's a similar principle. You know, the, this idea of you know, even though you're American, you're looking at business propositions in Europe and, and doing stuff there and, and what have you. It's much harder to do that 20 years ago. Now it's, it's, it's yeah. super easy. You know, we, we've got a different perspective of the world being much more global, digital, and what have you. And if you think about what do we love about Bitcoin, we love the fact that it's, you know, it's sovereign. No government controls it. And therefore, you know, that it's finite, that it's secure. And it's a great store of value. It lives on the internet, so to speak. There is no one country where you go, you know, I've got Bitcoin in country X. The touch point to the Bitcoin might be regulated in yeah, a country. You're, you're but right. But Bitcoin is sort of this, it, it, it's digital. Well, we tried to, to mirror that, you know, because we were born as a Bitcoin custodian and said, well, what's the next best thing or the equivalent of that in the financial services world? Well, you know, if you have an offshore account, it doesn't matter where you live, right? And if you have dollars, it's by far the sort of strongest, most versatile currency in the world, most widely used. So people outside of the US value having a dollar account, maybe not so much in Europe, Maybe not so much in Japan, but in Africa, Latin America, and, and Asia, having a dollar account is is a great way of having you know uh, flexibility and and with your with your money. So that's why we merge those two things together because it's it, it gives the customer the maximum amount of options of what they want to do with their money. It, it becomes about as borderless a bank as you can design and build from scratch. That's literally was one of Satoshi's visions. Anyways, uh, exactly what you just said. So thank you for, for, for helping to grow that. Seamus, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time, Charlie. Beautiful. Thank you so much. And that is a wrap for this episode of The Charlie Shrem Show. If you guys loved it, please leave us a review, subscribe, share it. A big thank you to Joseph from Pawn, Josh Garcia from Quetzal, and Seamus from Zappo Bank for joining us today for their insights on the current landscape. There's no doubt that we're living through some super challenging and exciting times in the world of Bitcoin and crypto finance. And I hope today's conversations illuminated the landscape a bit more for all of us. Remember, these discussions are not just for your passive consumption. 
We want you to engage. We want you to question. We want you to understand the world that we are shaping. So keep the conversation going online. Visit us at untoldstories.com. Hear more about the guests and the groundbreaking work. Don't forget to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. We're bringing you these shows for the past four years. We've had everyone, almost every founder of any blockchain, any crypto, any token has been on this show before. Just go to untoldstories.com and you can listen to all the past episodes. I'm Charlie Schrem. You can email me. My email address is right on the website there. And I'll see you next time for another deep dive.